Take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Luke, if you would. Luke 1, we're going to start there. We're not going to end there because we're going to start with Christmas and end with Easter tonight in this Bible study that we're going to look at together. Quite a little bit of turning here thematically. My main contention tonight, if I had a title for this message, I would call it Conditional Christianity. And you'll know why by the end. Christianity really isn't conditional, but that's what we think it is sometimes. And, and so I want to do two things tonight. I want to show you why some people get saved and one, why some people do not. It helps you think about where people are, how you would talk to them, if you have the opportunity to witness to them. And I want to tell you why some Christians follow Jesus, if this is possible to say biblically, and some people really aren't much of a disciple. And the answer is all about Jesus' identity. Who he is is the most important question anyone, anywhere, at any time could ever ask. And it's a, a Christian question. It's a gospel question. It's almost answered in every story, on every page of every gospel um, that we're going to face uh, and, and go through. And Luke in turn, and, and included with that tonight. So Luke 1, 34, you know this story. Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel, angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And that verb is only other used at the transfiguration when the glory cloud overshadowed Jesus. So it gives you an idea of how important that whole situation is. Therefore the child to be born will be called holy. Here's who Jesus is. The Son of God. Now that is an important term in this gospel. Let me show you how important it is. And, and can I just stay, let me, follow me tonight, because the uh, opening remarks are important. When you have to know who Jesus is, and if I went tonight for almost everyone in this room, if I asked you, who is Jesus, you would tell me who it was and you'd be accurate. You may not say exactly the same thing. You use different names or titles or descriptions, but we'd all come to the conclusion that pretty much the same thing. But Jesus never tells us who he is as if it's some sort of theological abstract concept. So we are, in our day, we're westernized, and so everything is propositional truth, and everything is some sort of creed, and all those things are really good, and they have their place, and we definitely need them. But that's not how Jesus communicates his identity he doesn't just want you to know facts about him or propositional statements or theological definitions. Um, those are helpful, believe me, very helpful. But he always says it in terms of the context of how who he is ought to change your life. And so let me tell you, coming to the understanding of, of the identity of Jesus is not something that's just something intellectual. It's relational. And if, you miss, if, you, if you're not careful, you can miss that at Christmas. Um, and Jesus in the manger is in a manger for a reason. And, and so we're going to look at that tonight. I want to do the first thing here just to prove my point to you. Is to follow the phrase, Son of God, through the Luke's Gospel. Luke 3.38, the next one, if you'll turn over there. G, Luke does a little different than Matthew's Christmas version. Matthew starts in chapter 1 with the genealogy. Luke doesn't start with it, he ends with it. All the birth narratives 
and the stories surrounding Jesus' birth or up until he's a couple years older. In this case, even into chapter 3 when he begins his ministry as adult, the genealogy doesn't come before all those things. In Luke's gospel, it comes after all of those things. And the kind of genealogy and where it takes you and what it ties Jesus into are different. The genealogy in Matthew starts with Jesus, the son of Abraham, the son of David, okay? And that's the important thing because Matthew's trying to link Jesus in as king. And so he's tied to Abraham because he's of Israel, and he's tied to David because he's the king. There's a different purpose in that. But notice how the genealogy, where it's placed and what it's accomplishing in Luke 3. It starts in verse 25, tells you how old Jesus was, and and it says, being the son of Joseph. So it starts with his ancestry in the present and works its way backwards instead of starting at the end and working its way forward. It's really the reverse of everything Matthew does, pretty much. And it goes through all the names, and I am not going to try to go through and pronounce them all for you, I can guarantee it. But at the end, it says, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam. Then what does it say? The son of God. So there's our second use. Now, so what's the importance of it? Son of God ties Jesus into God the Father because he's born of a virgin. And secondly, we learn son of God ties him in. He's not just the son of Abraham and Israel. He's not just the king of Israel through David. He is the representative of all humanity because he is the son of God like Adam. The son of Adam, the son of God. So he, he's not only divine, he's not only royal, he is human. Those are really important things. Those are great theological understanding that we need to have, but it's more than that. And by the way, let me say one more thing. Turn to the next one while you're at it there. Chapter 4 and verse 3 in the Temptations. Because you know the theological truths about Jesus being divine and human does not make you a Christian. It doesn't even make you religious. And let me tell you another step. It doesn't even make you a good person. And you can actually believe them. And it still doesn't do any of those things for you because theological abstract truths don't change people's lives. Case in point, Satan himself knows that Jesus is both divine and human and that he's the son of God. Chapter 4 and verse 3, chapter 4 and verse 9, he says, if you are the son of God, first class Greek conditional phrase, since you are the son of God. Satan knows that he was in heaven with Jesus. He knows exactly just because Jesus became a man doesn't put any doubt in Satan's mind about who he is. He's trying to say, we talked about this recently, since you're the son of God, then listen, then Jesus, you should act a certain way. And he wants to define for Jesus how to act. Okay, verse 9 says the same thing. If you are the son of God. Then we go over to chapter 4 and verse 41. If that wasn't enough, it says, Now the sun was setting all those who had any who were sick with various diseases, brought them to him, and laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, What? You are the Son of God. So Satan knows that and knows the theological truth of it. Demons know that, right? But they're not even religious, are they? Uh, not even good, wicked, right? So you can have the knowledge of who Jesus is and it doesn't have any impact on your life. And lastly, chapter 22, if you'll turn to the end where we're headed tonight. 2270. These are the religious leaders who are going to be in our text that we're going to park on tonight. 
they're questioning Jesus before they crucify him, and they say, they all said, are you the son of God then? And he says to them, you say that I am. In other words, he's affirming it. So Jesus tells them who he is, and it has a negative impact on them. They want to kill him. They don't want to worship him. They don't want to serve him. They don't want to follow him. They want to see him crucified. So let me tell you, you, you can see on the text where the phrase son of God describing Jesus is communicated, it doesn't guarantee any relationship with God whatsoever. Um, so let me tell you this. I want to give you a statement tonight that goes along with all of that. You can know the facts about the Son of God, but you don't really know him. You can know that Jesus is the Christ, and let me give you this for your understanding and own Bible study. The Christ, the King, the Anointed One, Son of God, all are synonymous. They are basically interchangeable for one another. Do you remember in John 1, 49, Nathaniel, see, Jesus sees Nathaniel under the tree, tells him that he saw him under the tree. He tells Nathaniel that he saw him under the tree before he ever came to Jesus, and Nathaniel's blown away by it. Do you remember what he says? Oh, he says, you are, what? The son of God, the king of Israel. He makes them the same. You are the son of God, the king of Israel. Now, we know today, because we have all the theology and we're post-resurrection, son of God for us has deity in it. It didn't have deity in it for them at the time. Uh, they didn't really understand that about Jesus quite yet. Son of God was the king of Israel. David said that when God, God said to David, when I put you on the throne, I will be your father and you will be my son. And that was the relationship they had. And so from then on, after David, everyone who was the Israelites king was the son of God, meaning they had a relationship with God, a special anointed one as the king. Jesus comes along and he's going to put more fullness into that definition but they don't but, but to be the Christ is anointed anointed was the king if you're the king of Israel you're the Christ you're the son of God those are all synonymous terms so when they're asking are you the king of Israel um, Satan and the demons are asking a little bit different question we're going to see the religious leaders ask it they don't quite mean all the same but Jesus kept telling people he was the Christ, the Son of God, but he also kept telling them that he was God, which almost got him stoned on a couple of occasions. So people are starting to get the feeling of what he's saying and what he's meaning by all of that. So let me, with that in mind, give you the big idea I have tonight, and that is this. Um, there are two approaches to Christianity. Once you find out the identity of Christ, um, you're going to have two approaches to him. There's going to be the, I call it the conditional approach, and the non-conditional approach. This is true with people who are unsaved thinking about coming to Christianity in Christ, and it's also true, and could be for you tonight, about people who have come to Christianity in Christ and have uh, been saved by him and now are following him, and this is their approach to following him or discipleship. There's conditions to it or there's not conditions to it. And, and I want to go through um, these sections tonight with you. There are a lot of verses. I'm going to say them to you. If you want to look them up for your own later, you can get this and hear it again, or you can ask me or whatever. There's quite a few. But in Luke's gospel, on the discipleship side, there's a number of times where Jesus says, follow or follow me. I'm going to give them to you real quickly. Uh, Luke 5.11, Jesus told Peter to go, you know, the fish, throw your net down. He does. He comes out. He's ashamed of himself. And then at the end of it, Jesus says, follow me. And it says they forsook all and followed him, Luke 5, 11. He went up to Matthew at the tax collector's booth, and it said, 
follow me, and it says this, he left all and followed him. Luke 5, 27 and 28. Jesus said to those reporting to John the baptizer who was in prison, Luke 7, 23, blessed is he who is not offended because of me, and that was a, an implication of what it meant to follow him, that you would follow him, but you wouldn't be offended in what, what that meant to follow him. Luke 9, 23 and 24, Luke 9, 59 and 61, where everybody, the three guys come up to him and said, Lord, I'll follow you anywhere. And he says, well, I don't have a place to sleep. And you can't go back and sell your, uh, or, or do your cattle first. And you can't go home and bury your father first. You got to follow me. You got to get rid of all that, forsake all of that. He says in Luke 18, 22 to the rich young ruler, sell all you have, come follow me. And then you, there's a couple more versions at the end of it, but the whole pattern of Luke's gospel, without going into all the detail, is that when you follow him, when you get saved, there can be no conditions. It's not Jesus, I want to show you a minute, it's not Jesus, you do this and then I'll get saved. And you can't do that when you are a Christian either. You can't say, Jesus, hey, I'm saved, but if you really want me to be obedient and you really want me to be a disciple and you really want to follow me, then I've got my conditions. And Jesus is a scandal because of that. He's a scandal because of who he claims to be and what those claims mean to our lives. Let me show you now with detail about what exactly I mean. If you look over to a passage in Luke 23, verse 32, I want to tell you or retell you the story of the two thieves that are on either side of Jesus when he's crucified. Two others who were criminals. This is a word, a compound Greek word. It means evildoers. Other gospels use the Greek word lestai, which means revolutionaries. But they weren't there because, it says robbers in some versions, but they weren't there because they were robbing people's houses of their goods. They were revolutionaries, Jewish revolutionaries against Roman soldiers and had committed murder or some sort of act of terror. And they were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, and I've been there, and it does look exactly like a skull. It is an outcropping of a rock that's the precipice of a hill. You could actually right next to it today, you have an enclosed glass walkway because that rock place of the skull, believe it or not, there's a bus transit parking lot. <laughs> that's what it is today. In the back of the parking lot, that's where the rock is because nobody puts any value in it. But it does look like a skull you would see, so it's pretty accurate in that sense. And they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right hand and on his left. Jesus said, and this is crucial, later on I'll tell you why, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. They cast lots to divide his garments. Now watch, and the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him. The word means mocked, literally in the Greek it means to turn your nose up at someone. So they thought they were better than him and thought he was a loser, basically. And they mocked at him, it says, saying, he saved others. Keep this in mind. Let him save himself. Since, I'm going to do it the right way, since he is the Christ of God, they're mocking him because he said he was that. The chosen one. That's an Isaiah prophecy. And then it says, the soldiers mocked him. Now there's the sending order of progression. You got the rulers, and now you have down the chain a little bit left. You have the soldiers who are a little lower than them. 
and social status, and then you got down at the end, it will see in a moment, the thief that's next to him on the cross, one of them. And it says, the soldiers mocked him, coming up and offering sour wine, saying, if you are the king of Israel, now we, the king of the Jews, now we've learned already, right, tonight? If you're the Christ, that's the first mock. If you're the king of Israel, we've learned that's the same mock. They're saying the same thing, just using different words, right? It says, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. Same pronouncement. If you're the king, this was also an inscription over his head. This is the king of the Jews. So it was written in, in Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic. Then one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? So in other words, if you're the Messiah, you're the king of Israel, save yourself and us. So here's the first one. You want to, this, is the non, this is the conditional approach. And, and I call it the prob, problem-centered one. Um, it's people who are thinking about coming to Jesus, but they have difficulties in their lives. They have problems in their lives. They have things that are going wrong in their lives. And they want to know if Jesus is going to use his, his power as the Son of God to fix those things. Let me give you some examples. If you've ever met someone like this. I've talked to people who are struggling in a marriage thinking about divorce. And they're thinking about coming to Faith Baptist Church or inviting Jesus into their lives. And they ask, what is your church's Christian view of marriage? And the reason they want to know is, they want to know, if I join your church and give my life to Jesus, will I be supported uh, when I want to divorce my spouse? And, and they want to know that. And they, and they want to know that ahead of time. I have talked to people who, um, based on their view of themselves, they have a lot of guilt because of the sinful things they chose to chosen to do in their lives. I've talked to people who have been victimized by other people, and a lot of sinful things have been done to them. And they want to know that when they come to church here, and, and, and if they have Jesus as their Lord and Savior, will he make them feel good about all the things that have made them feel bad in their lives? And they want to know that ahead of time. That's really crucial as an underpinning and requirement for their making a decision to know Jesus or not. I have talked to here at Mosaic, other, other places as well, people who are homosexual, and, and they say to me, if I come to Christ, will I be supported or condemned by you or the church? And they, they want to know that ahead of time. And, and the reason why they want to know that is because they have conditions. And they, ask, they act like they're asking questions, and they say, hey, I've really been seeking Jesus, but I haven't really got any answers. And I've talked to people who are coming to Jesus or thinking about coming to Jesus who are battling addictions, people who are really struggling in a financial way. I've talked to people that are so lonely for so many years because they're still single, people who have been unemployed and don't know how they're going to make it, and they're virtually almost homeless. I've talked about people who have certain things in their lifestyle that they know that they're not there, and they think about coming to Jesus, and they want to know that if they come to Jesus and give their lives to him, can they keep doing those things? And, and that begins to be the problem and I always tell the people, you're asking the wrong question. I never answer yes or no to them because I say, you've got to start asking the right question because what they're really saying is, I want to know whether you're going to do, you know, let me do what I want with my life. 
I want to know before I give myself to you, Jesus, or become part of your church, I want to know if I can still continue to do the things I want to do in my life. And if I want to, will you support me? In other words, will you let me live the way I want to live? And so these people are coming to Jesus and they say, hey, here's my condition for you. I'll believe you're the Christ. I'll believe you're the Son of God. Here's how. You come down from the cross. You save yourself. And then the thief says, not only will you save yourself, here's what he says, you save me too. And, and, and that's what he's looking for. You don't need to turn there, but if we turn back to Luke 7, and the other place that's mentioned is Matthew 11, John the baptizer is in prison, and he is struggling. And so he sends some of his disciples to ask Jesus a question and then come back and report to him. And here's the question. He says, ask Jesus, are you really the one? Now, listen, there's a difference between struggling like these people in our text and how John the baptizer struggled. Let me give you the reason why. John the baptizer didn't give any conditions. What he did not say was this. Hey, if you are the one, if you're the son of God, Jesus, then hey, I'm your forerunner, so come out and get me out of prison. See, John didn't put conditions on it. He just wanted to be clear on it. He wanted to hear from Jesus' mouth about why the things he didn't understand about him, how, how it could be so that he was doing what he was doing, and mainly what he wasn't, wasn't doing. But he wasn't, he wasn't asking with conditions for himself. That's the difference. Now see, there are, see, now listen, this also happens with people who are Christians, See, you ask Jesus to save you and you love the fact that he's son of God and he's Lord and he's savior and that he died on the cross and rose again for your sins. But when it comes to really following him, I mean really obeying him, I mean really trying to be like him, we put conditions on it. Just like the, I'll follow you Jesus anywhere, but what we really mean is as long as it's not this. And I'll do anything you want, Jesus. We say, I surrender all. And all is really conditional. It really should be me. I surrender some, or I surrender a part, or maybe two-thirds. Or, but we really don't mean all. And, but Jesus really meant it. I mean, would you like it if you had a pastor who someone came down the aisle on Sunday morning, and I preached the gospel, and, they, and, and I knew that they were a millionaire and they came down, and I knew money was the issue, like it was the rich regular. And they come, Pastor Walker, I, I like to get saved and follow Jesus. And I said, well, here's what you do. Go home and sell both your Mercedes and your Lincoln and your two homes, and I want you to put all your stocks, and I want you to cash them in, give it to the church, and I want you to come and follow Jesus. You say, Pastor, what in the world is wrong with you? And I would say, that's what Jesus said, isn't it? Why? Because you can buy your way into heaven? No. No. But here's what Jesus says. You can't put any conditions on it. You can't say, Jesus, I'll be saved or I'll follow you, but, see? And so you have these people, you have John the baptizer, but he doesn't put conditions, he's got questions. And listen, here's the greatest thing about Jesus. I love this about him. He, he's okay with you struggling. He really is. He's okay with you asking questions. He doesn't tell, hey, go down back and tell John. He should know by now. He's got the theology. I'm not answering that question. He doesn't say that. He's okay. In fact, he gives John an answer. Read the text for you. He says, go back and tell John what you see and hear. 
that the, the, the lame walk and the blind see and the dead are raised to life. You know what? Jesus is quoting Isaiah 35. Those are messianic prophecies in Isaiah. He says, go see it. But you know what John was looking for? He's looking for Jesus to have marshaled an army. He's looking for Jesus to have put together a unique political party that's going to usurp authority over the Romans. I would guess, and I can't prove it, but I'm guessing John was so bold in his denunciation of Herod's sin, which got him put in prison, and the reason why he didn't think too much of it, because he thought for sure no matter what happens, I'm connected with Jesus, he's going to take over. I don't have to worry about him. Either he'll rescue me or I'll never have a problem. And when he's sitting in prison and his, and his life is hanging by a thread and Jesus isn't showing up, in fact, he's here and doing anything but the things he thought he would do. He's bewildered. And Jesus says the most unique beatitude in John 11. He says, blessed are those who are not offended because of me. You know what he means by that? When I don't do all the things you want me to do and I'm not the kind of son of God you thought I would be. See, I, I have met also, let me flip it on the other side. I have met people who get saved. Let me say it this way. They profess Christ. They have tears. They're emotional. And, and that's okay because a lot of things in genuine salvation, that's how it occurs a lot of times. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But here's the thing. They get saved and then within the first month, things don't turn out like they thought. God doesn't put their marriage back together. They still struggle with some of the addictions they had before. Um, their finances don't bounce back. Their children don't magically love them when they were so mean to them and rude to them before. And things don't all turn out. In fact, sometimes, believe it or not, it gets worse. And guess what happens? They get disillusioned. And they kind of fall away. And they stop little by little coming to church. And then pretty soon within months, you're not even sure what was really happening when they made that profession. You know why? They had conditions. In their mind and heart, whether they verbalized them or not, they thought, I'm going to come to Jesus and I've got all these problems. And he, here's why. Because the, the conditional approach says, Jesus, I want you to do things for me. And it asks questions like this. Will you help me? Will you do this for me? Will you fix this for me? And that's the basis for which they come to Jesus. And the truth is they really don't want him. They want what he can do for them. Jesus, come down off the cross, save yourself, and save me. See, then I'll believe that you are the Christ. And when they don't get the answers they're looking for, things don't change in their lives, they find it to be a difficulty. Now, on the other side of it, if I could say this to you, is the other cr uh, criminal on the cross. If you look at Luke 23 again, in verse 39, it says, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, do you not fear God? He says, do you, not, let me also, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation and we indeed justly for we receiving the due reward of our deeds but this man has done nothing wrong and it's the Greek word atapos. The prefix ah means nothing and tapos out of place. In other words, 
Here's the difference. There is the conditional approach, which is a problem-centered approach. Jesus, I come to you, solve my problems. And then there's the non-conditional approach, which is a, not a problem-centered approach, it's a pardon-centered approach. And, and here's what he says. The second thief on the cross doesn't ask Jesus to do anything. Now notice, he's been listening to everyone. The ruler said, come off the cross and save yourself. The soldier said, if you're the king, come down from the cross and save yourself. The other thief and the same guy and probably knows him. They are probably crucified together because they are the same group of terrorists. He probably knows a guy by name. That's why he rails on him. And he says, but here, the second thief doesn't do any, he doesn't listen to anybody, including his buddy on the cross. He doesn't ask Jesus for anything. Listen, he doesn't say, hey, Jesus, I, I believe that you are, so could you get me down? He doesn't even ask it politely. In fact, listen, this is the crazy thing. He actually believes in Jesus, but in doing so, he doesn't even ask him for anything that has to do with this life. Did you see that? In fact, I don't, I, I struggled in my text, in my study today. I'm looking and thinking, look what the things he says. He's looking and, and this is my only, my, my knowledge, the only time this guy ever had a conversation with Jesus. I don't even know if he ever saw or met Jesus. He obviously knew stuff about him. But here's what he says. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, rem remember, everybody thinks that Jesus is a kind of king who's a joke because kings triumph and beat their foes and their enemies. They don't get crucified by him. So that to everybody else is a sign that he's a pseudo-messiah. He's a false He's, he's, it's all wrong. This guy sees through all of it. No one else can. So why do some guy, people get saved and some people don't? I mean, there's the vast majority of people. Rulers, soldiers, they're a thief. They all are mocking him, railing against him, think he's a joke, that he's a loser king because he's getting crucified. But this one guy who's getting crucified next to him sees everything completely different. How and why? How? He says, Lord, remember me. Now listen, how far does this go? L listen to this. The only people who ask someone, I mean, people who ask someone in the Bible to remember them, they're always talking to God. Noah, the Bible says, Genesis 8, 1, and God remembered Noah. And the Bible says that in Abraham, it says when he destroyed Lot, I mean, not Lot, but Sodom and Gomorrah, it says in Genesis 19, 25, and God remembered Abraham. Rachel couldn't have children, and finally God opened her womb, and here's what it says, Genesis 30, 22, and God remembered Rachel. Exodus 2, 24, when the Israelites were heavy under the burden of Egyptian slavery and oppression, here's what it said of Israel, Exodus 2, 24, and God remembered Israel. Hannah couldn't have a child. She was crying, and for years and years, Penina was ruining her life, and in 1 Samuel 1.19, it says, And God remembered Hannah. Nehemiah prays three times at the end of his book on his life and ministry and for his people. And here's what he says, And God, remember me for good. Three times he says it. And then we come to the thief on the cross. And I believe when he looks at Jesus, he says, Lord, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. You know what he's saying? Come into my life and change me. Remember me. For Rachel, it was a baby I can't have, and would you do it for me? Nehemiah, would you do in Israel what I can't finish? 
For Abraham, it was his lineage. And, and everybody who is remembered by God, Noah coming out of the flood, every time God remembers someone, it's in a, someone who's in a situation that is impossible for them to solve on their own. God steps in, the, steps in and does something amazing they could never do. And here's what the guy says. You remember all those people that you remembered? Would you do that for me? Would you remember me? Would you remember me because I can't do anything about this situation? And then he says, when you come into your kingdom, and he had the ability, when he put his faith in Jesus as the son of God, not conditionally, non-conditionally, that someday you couldn't see it then because Jesus was dying weakness on a cross, naked, in public. He says, when you come into your kingdom, he believed someday that Jesus would be who he said he was and he would have power but the weakness was what was taking place right now. And that's why, listen to this, that's why the guy could say, you and I, the other thief, we're getting exactly what we deserve. We are getting justice for what, but this man? See, he would say, the thief would say, my life is completely out of place. Everything in my life is out of place. This guy, look at him. There's nothing out of place. Do you know who he is? Don't you fear God? In, in a moment of revelation, the guy sees Jesus for who he is. Listen, and it changes everything. He knows who he is. See, listen, that's what it ought to do for you and me. That he's the son of God. It doesn't change Satan, and it doesn't change demons, but it ought to change us. If you've been to the cross, and you understand the claims of Jesus, you know who he says he is, Many, most people are offended by it and that Jesus is going to tell them they have to forsake everything and they can't have any conditions. And, and most people are offended by it, but it's those people like the other thief on the cross who have given faith by God, who sees Jesus for who he is, and when they see it, changes everything, everything in their lives. That is what God desires for you that you wouldn't just know him abstractly through theological propositions, as good as all that knowledge can be. But knowing who Jesus is, he is the Son of God. He was when he was born in that manger, Luke one thirty-five, to a virgin named Mary. And he was when he died on the cross, because here's the issue. Being the Son of God meant that Jesus took the way of weakness. And that's why we don't like it. We don't like it because people will say, I can't follow Jesus because look at the suffering in my life. Look at the evil and the suffering in the world. And aren't everybody saying that? I think this is the time where people struggle with Jesus more than any other time because they can't explain it. You know why? Because they're not asking the right questions and because they are conditional in their approach to Jesus. They said, hey, Jesus, I'll believe on you. Solve the pandemic. Solve the world crisis. Put us economically back on the map. Jesus, if you were really who you were, then you'd do this, this, and this. And when he doesn't, I can't believe in that. See, because they put conditions on it. And you'd say, why I get that? That's the world. Be careful because that's us sometimes too. Yeah, I can't believe, Jesus, I have this going on in my life. Look at my marriage. What's wrong? Why are my kids not turning out the way? And I can't believe I didn't get that promotion. And why am I getting? Be careful, because we put conditions on him. And Jesus says, there cannot be any, because if I am who I say I am, that's all you need to know. And then you follow by faith. 
Let's pray. Father, help us. Help us to have the eyes of faith that that thief on the cross, I mean, it was all of grace. There's not one thing he could do. I mean, Master, it's hard for us to grasp because looking at the cross and how Jesus died, looking at the thief, it's all of us. We don't want to believe that we were so wicked that it took Jesus dying like that to save us, that we had to be so helpless. I mean, there's nothing he could have done. There's nothing we could have done. We are so far out there, and it just strips us of any power that we might have thought we had. And it's hard for us to come to you like that. But we do. That's how bad off we are. And that's how much you loved us. You didn't love us to say like Mr. Rogers, I love you no matter what you're like. No, you, despite, you loved us despite what we were like. And because you did that, you are the Son of God. You are the Lord of all creation. And we tonight say to you, that's enough. That's enough for us. You don't have to explain anything more. There's nothing you have to prove to us. There's nothing you have to do for us. You are God and you alone, and we worship you. Help us to live that way and be impacted by who you are like that every single day. By your grace and for your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.